Hello and welcome to Psych Path Pod, Navigating Educational and Career Possibilities. I am Dr. Jenna Bain Lawton, and today with me is my esteemed colleague, Brad McDowell. I am so excited to have Brad with us today. I think that uh, listeners will very much appreciate his uh, experiences and insights. And so I'm going to actually let him introduce himself a little bit. Um, if you wouldn't mind just telling us how long have you been at the college and, and um, what's your current role here, and then we'll get into to some of the background stuff. Uh, yeah, well, uh, thanks for having me. This is great, Jenna. Uh, I think this is an excellent project. So I've been at the college for about 20 years now, um, and uh, I do a lot of different things at the college, obviously teaching. Um, mostly I teach intro psych. I have a couple specialty classes, psychology of men and masculinity, sport and performance psychology. Uh, I was an early adopter in our department of online teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, I just thought that was a really important aspect of our students' experience here, working, raising families, needing to have some autonomy over how you can still complete classes. I also do a couple of other cool things within the college mm-hmm. that I have a lot of fun doing. Um, I was trained in Vipassana meditation by Buddhist monks in Kathmandu, Nepal, 20 years ago. And so I work with our athletes doing meditation mindfulness training. Um, I also work in the Student Achievement Center once a week, tutoring uh, students. And then um, I, teach, I teach a class on uh, perspectives and study abroad. So I've traveled, really? the, I've traveled the world a fair bit. And uh, so uh, Tammy Gibbs and I co-teach a class for students who are on study abroad. I did not know that. That's excellent. Yeah. What a great way to share that experience. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. Um, well, let's start, uh, I guess, at the, the beginning of the background. So um, we can start either undergrad or earlier. Uh, what was your experience kind of getting into psychology in the first place? <laughs> well, that's, it's kind of a funny story. Um, I knew I wanted to go to college back in the 80s. I was a first-generation college student. My father went to community college and had an RN degree, but that was almost like a certificate, you know, really quick training. And then he was a nurse anesthetist, and that was an on-the-job training program. So nobody in my family finished college. My mom kind of jokes that when I went to college, she thought that part of the deal was they gave you a job when you graduated. <laughs> I wish. And so, <laughs> so I went to college. Um, I went to college. I was a I was a jock in my town. Sports mattered. Football mattered. And I didn't really actually know I was smart. I could just get B's without even trying. And so school was just something you did every day. I did the same thing when I went to college. Um, I went to St. John's University in Minnesota to be a football player. And um, I didn't I didn't understand anything about college. I had to figure it all out on my own. And uh, I could do the same thing when I got there. I get 3.0, 3.0 for my semesters, mm-hmm. just taking gen ed classes and not really applying myself. I didn't know how to study. Um, I was just kind of following the script as I thought it was. Mm-hmm. Until my sophomore year, my GPA started to go 2.5, 2.2, and I had hit my limit of having no study abilities. Um, but also I just didn't know what I was doing or mm-hmm. why I was there. I didn't didn't have a sense of what it was about. I was a natural science major at that time. I, I, I quoted things like uh, sports science or sports medicine I'm going to go into. And I didn't even know what that meant just because I was this jock. I didn't know I was smart. Um, I just really wasn't thinking about what I was going to do. And I really literally had no clue. Mm-hmm. I came back my junior year and I looked at my next level science classes, organic chemistry and 
you know, higher level math. And I had a, literally had a panic attack. I cannot take these classes. I'm not interested in them. I don't like them. Um, I'm not motivated to do them. I didn't know what to do. So I met with an advisor at my college um, in distress uh, two weeks before college was starting. And the, the advisor looked at me and said, well, what's the goal? And I said, well, I think the goal is just to graduate in four years. I don't really know. I didn't have any clue. And the advisor looked at my transcript and said, you know, you've got like four psych classes you've taken and you have A's in all those classes. If your goal is to graduate in four years, the only way you can do it is if you're a psych major, because that's the constellation of classes that will allow you to get there. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so I, I just said, okay, I'll become a psych major. And there's something in it, right? Like mm -hmm. those classes are interesting to me. Obviously, I wasn't tuning into that. Um, obviously, I had success in those mm -hmm. classes because I was willing to do the work. And probably because I had some aptitude for it. Mm -hmm. I, would have, I would consider myself a generalist, most likely that I could mostly do well at anything that I tried to do. I didn't really have anything that stuck out at me. Mm -hmm. My wife always knew she wanted to be a teacher mm -hmm. since she was in third grade. That's not how it worked for me. I did that, no clue what I wanted to do. But in this for me is a big life lesson of tuning into yourself, tuning into your gut, tuning into what feels right. And even though I didn't have the answer, just kind of going with that. Mm -hmm. So once I became a psych major, um, that's where um, the professors started to notice. Mm -hmm. um, I think the aptitude that I have for this, immediately one of the professors said, hey, Brad, we want you to run our intro psych lab. Oh, wow. You know? And so it's interesting because there that was my senior year, uh, me doing exactly what I'm doing now. <laughs> so like it made itself known. Yeah. And and I think that's what we professors try to do with our students is right. where we see skill and aptitude and talent. We try to reflect that back to mm -hmm. them. So once I became a psych major, basically college was 4.0, 4.0, 4.0, 4.0 <laughs> from there. I was highly motivated. It was really fun. Um, I enjoyed – once I got to like the, the, the behavioral class – um, the Rat Olympics at my school, <laughs> training the rat to run the maze. Um, it was so much fun. I just, I enjoyed it. That's so. That's how I became a psych major. I'm a I'm a reluctant psychology professor. <laughs> just got into it accidentally, but fortuitously. And I think because it was probably my a natural skill set yeah. that I had. Yeah, an interest area yeah. um, that you, that you weren't picking up on. Were you interested in any particular? area of psychology or was it kind of just every class was wow this is interesting so at that time i just i just didn't know i didn't have any support in terms of how to think about a career or futures i was just kind of taking the next things all on my own and so in the beginning it was just generally being a psych major mm -hmm. and then because i didn't know what i was going to do i just kind of randomly started applying for jobs like a lot of my college friends and these were like business-related jobs in Minneapolis and St. Paul area. And, of course, I was failing miserably because it wasn't the right thing for me. Right. And I was very dis it was very hard that, that end of that senior year, like, who am I going to be? What am I going to do? And I had a friend that was in my psych classes who was further down the path. He knew he was going to go to grad school. Mm -hmm. And he said to me, hey, you know, um, I'm going to work this year in this residential treatment facility after I graduate, and they're hiring. If you need a job, you should probably check out with them. So I yeah, okay, I'll check it out. So it's all just kind of this, this – there's some interesting data in this for me. Mm -hmm. It's um, the idea that we try to meticulously plan the dots of our path <laughs> versus the idea that we just kind of do what seems to make sense mm -hmm. and trust that the path will, path will evolve. Pinball. That's kind of how my, that's kind of how mm -hmm. my career works. So out of college – in the 1980s, 
I took a shift at a residential treatment facility where kids that were removed from their homes, removed from their communities, had significant mental health issues. So this was mental health based. This wasn't juvenile justice. This was mental health based residential treatment. Um, I, out of college, was paid $7 an hour to work the Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday overnight shift. That was my first job with my degree out of college, the overnight shift at a residential treatment facility. Well, right into it, right? (laughs) Oh, jeez. I just needed a job and I lived. So I'll just keep going because as I did this job, I looked at the things that existed. I didn't know anything about these places before. I'd never had exposure to them. So I started to kind of work this job and I look at the the day shift and I wanted to like actually work with the kids, not just be the night manager. Mm -hmm. And then as I worked in the day shift, I started to look at the unit coordinator. Who's that person? I think I could do that job. Mm -hmm. Then I started to look at the other entities that existed within the facility, you know, and I'd see the therapist and I'd see the program director. And it was became really clear to me fast that like I didn't want to just work at this level. Sure. That I had the ability, the skill, the drive to work at a higher level, and that meant getting a graduate degree. So the first year I worked there, I tried to fill out um, applications for grad school, and I just couldn't do it because I had no clarity. Mm-hmm. I had no sense of when I was asked a question by a grad school, you know, what what specifically are you interested in doing, and mm-hmm. kind of where are you headed. I really still couldn't verbalize that. All I knew is I wanted to step up within the industry. Um, but I just lacked clarity. So mm-hmm. I literally tabled everything after that first year, sat down, and I set, I set a goal for myself. Um, next year I'm going to apply for schools, but I'm going to have more clarity and I'm going to know how to do this. Again, remember, I had nobody helping me right. figure out applications. I had nobody like helping me navigate this at all. So, so I just literally tabled it for a year, kept, continued to work, took like higher positions that I could within the, within the system because I was successful, and then came back to making applications for grad school that, final, that next year, and I had a lot of clarity about how to state what I wanted to do next. Did you find your work um, in the, the residential treatment facility so, so you wanted, you knew you wanted to to be in a, a clinical capacity after having worked there. You enjoyed the work enough to to say that's kind of the direction you wanted to go. Yes, correct. So, actually, within that year, I I made a goal to myself to start to do other stuff to find out. So, I I worked in that that residential facility, and if you aren't aware of it, um, kids live there six months to a year. They have day day programming for school on site have therapists that work with them their families come out once a week we do therapy work so it's that very clinical setting so do i really want to work in this kind of clinical setting Mm -hmm. so then i started to work at a runaway shelter because i thought of that kind of interesting like that's another area that you know you're working with people but maybe it's in a different way um did that for a little while then i picked up a job actually in a in a um, locked juvenile justice facility uh, where I worked with um, very severely mentally ill youth who were also criminals. Mm-hmm. So that's different than the population. Right. And after working in that job for a little while, I really quickly learned I don't really like carrying handcuffs in my back pocket mm-hmm. and having to operate in that way. So even though that paid a lot more money, like I wasn't going to do that. So th- another part of my story, I think, is the linearity of stuff. I'm kind of a linear thinker in some ways. And so rather than randomly saying, I'm going to take this job over in business or this job at Target where they're hiring in human resource development and I have a psych degree. And what happened to me is that I just kind of got on this track 
And for better or for worse, I decided to stay within that track. And that linearity actually is what added up to kind of the success of my life. Right. I didn't have a lot of left and right offshoots that didn't make sense. It was always a progression, next step in progression that within the clinical field. Wonderful. And it was always with kids. Or were you working uh, with adults at that point? Too? So that was all kids before I went to grad school. Two years of working in different kids' settings and then going to grad school. Excellent. So, so in those experiences, did you have supervisors or uh, other colleagues who did support your decision to go to grad school? Was there any funding in there that they were saying, you know, here you can if you can move up if in in our our company? Not there was a, no, nothing. Not at all. These are there. these are. Um, if any listeners have had opportunities. Opportunity is probably the wrong word, but if you've had exposure to these types of facilities and this system, you know, it's some of them are tough places. Some right. of them aren't really great for kids. Right. Um, some of them are good for kids. So it's a, it's a hit and miss situation. It's very nonprofit oriented. There's not a lot of money. There wasn't any sense of if you go to school, you can come back here and work. Mm-hmm. I was just kind of making the decisions that I'm going to move on to grad school and just see where it takes me next. Awesome. So the next step then, um, so you were applying to grad schools. Did you apply to a lot of different programs or specific ones or how did you kind of navigate that? So it was pretty local, Minnesota, Wisconsin. In the beginning, I had a lot of applications sitting on a table that just kind of flummoxed me. I didn't know how to, how to filter it out. Yes. By the, by the second year that I came around, my work had paid off, my rising up had paid off, my new experiences had paid off, and I was able to just quickly kind of narrow it down. So my application process for me going to grad school was, what would be a dream school in my mind at that time that I'd want to go to? What would be a school that I'm pretty sure that I could get into? And what would be a school that if nothing else works, I'll be able to get into that school? So mm-hmm. I was setting it up so that no matter what happened, I would be somewhere that following year. Okay. So my dream school was UW-Madison. Uh, um, I got on the, I was on the wait list. My next tier school was University of Minnesota Duluth. I was interested in living up in Duluth. Um, I readily got into that place. And my, my third tier school was like a master's program in counseling at St. Cloud State or something mm-hmm. locally. So kind of multiple tiers. Mm-hmm. And so you, when you um, were making that decision, did funding play a role in which was program you on chose? on my own. I mean, I was 100% on my own to fund this and figure it out and take out loans. And I was an autonomous adult. Um, I, I uh, my parents gave me luggage for for graduation present when I was eighteen. <laughs> they love me, and if they happen to my mom happens to listen to this, um, it's just an inside joke that the luggage was kind of. She says it's like because you're taking your next step and you're moving. I, I kind of felt like, oh, I guess I'm moving. <laughs> I guess you're going. <laughs> and they loved me to death, but they just didn't have any knowledge sure. about this. And never in any industry did I work where there was any opportunity for funding for support or support. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And that, that's an interesting story because I got into Duluth. I moved to Duluth and the two states, Minnesota versus Wisconsin, in Duluth, uh, eight weeks out from starting school. I'm sitting with financial aid advisors and kind of getting myself set up as a 25, 26-year-old adult and they basically informing me that that, that the cost was just going to be prohibitive. I didn't even know that at the time. I thought oh, that wow. I thought that I was going to be able to take the loans I needed or whatever, but right. somehow whatever the paperwork looked like, the cost was just I literally remember sitting there saying, "You know, 
you're telling me that I will not be able to go to school this fall because I need this loan or this money or whatever. And however the financing worked back then, it, it wasn't going to happen. And so I had a brief window where I was like stuck. I don't know sure. what I'm going to do about this. And then out of nowhere, I got a letter from University of Wisconsin. I got taken off the wait list. <laughs> Um, and so I got accepted into UW and in a, in a heartbeat, it's like, I'm packing things up. I'm going to Madison. I got to Madison in that same week, sitting with an advisor at UW asking about how to get these loans or whatever. Right. They were just 100%. No worries. We can get you anything you need. You can, you know, take the loans out that you need. You have access to everything. It was really quite amazing at the wow. time, the difference between the two states. Is that, that's just state structure or school uh, to school? Or? I have really no idea. Wow. At the time I was just kind of taking every next best step. Sure. And I just remember being like so thankful that I was able to access the loans that I yeah. needed when I got to Madison. Definitely. Did they provide um, any, or were there in your program, was it was it the counseling program so, at UW? Yep, so it's the, uh, the PhD counseling psych program. Nine, in the 1990s, it was called counselor education. Okay. So it was the master's degree in counselor education. It's now an, um, would be an MS in counseling psych. So it's that same program. Yeah. Excellent. And so did you go into a um, master's, a terminal master's, or it was a PhD program at no, that point? it was just the master's. So remember, I had no idea why I went to college. I went to college to play football, um, <laughs> which I'm glad that's in the past. Um, I didn't really, wasn't targeting anything specific in my life. I was kind of just living and being open to the steps that, you know, kind of opened up for me. And so um, at that time, I didn't think I was capable of a PhD. I didn't think that I was a PhD student. I didn't think that I was smart enough to be a PhD student. So I just applied for the terminal master's degree. It's probably one of my greatest regrets in life that I didn't get a PhD. Um... Not a regret as in it pains me, but right. a regret as in I was obviously capable of you doing that. You could have that. done it. And I obviously have a lot of really like profound interests you know, inside right. myself right. that would have been great. But I just never had seen it, didn't know anybody that did it. I was outstripping my entire family lineage now as I entered mm-hmm. into grad school. So I shot, I shot low. Sure. Um, I wanted to get this degree and be able to go work you know, in the jobs right. that I'd been working in. Right. And at the time, were you told anything about that um, in terms of or did you have any sense of what the job market was looking for in terms of like were masters more valuable at that point just because they were less expensive? No, or I, don't, it- I don't remember that being a conversation at all at the time. I remember just basically thinking to myself, if I get a master's degree, I can go into those facilities that I worked in and I can be the therapist. Sure. I can... Um, you know, I can work at that level. I can be the director of that program mm-hmm. with that graduate degree. Um, yeah, that's, that's all I remember at the time. Um, were there any particularly, speaking of your grad school experience then, were there any things that were particularly meaningful to you? Uh, like relationships with faculty, research experience, practicum, things that happen? Yeah, I, I, so for, for college students listening to these things, I think it, sh- it should be understood that... Um, in general, your first couple of years of college should be exploration. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know I'm biased when I say this, but I mean, I think the research is pretty clear that if you have degrees and you have credentials, over your lifetime, you're going to make more money. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to kind of hold this carrot a little bit because what it means to me is something different in terms of options. Yes. The degrees, the credentials, you don't know what you want to be 20 years from now. Right. And so if you don't have the degrees or the credentials, those doors won't be open for you. Mm-hmm. So when I was in grad school, so first two years of college exploration, second two years of college, oh, wow, now I get to do this kind of science-based stuff, train the rat, we're doing this. <laughs> um, like so fun, right? And then grad school, 
nine times more fun, in my <laughs> opinion, really is, to it? be in grad school. To be in these topics that are mm-hmm. super interesting. I've got life experience, so it's not just kind of coming out of left field. Mm-hmm. I can apply it directly. In grad school, I yeah, I had some a few profound experiences. Um, I had like a work study. So like the program gave me a work study, which was a way to help pay for it, right? Sure. Yep. But it wasn't really like a it was, because it was a master's degree. It wasn't a uh, a TA position mm-hmm. or wasn't anything like that, but it was kind of an interesting work study. So I got a job in the counseling center and I did co-counseling with the psychologists that work in the, the counseling center. And so that was just Excellent. for the, for two years there, I got to sit side by side, <coughs> excuse me. And it was a co-counseling model. So it was set up, you know, to teach and mentor someone right. like me. And the, the area that I was in, they needed someone was couples and relationships counseling <laughs> You know, different I, than what you were doing at the... And I went in and I said, you know, based <laughs> on my track record of relationships, <laughs> this job is super interesting to me, but I don't know if I really qualify. And the, and the psychologist laughed and she said, oh, listen, you know, we all understand <laughs> that we can't be great at everything, right. but we have skills that we bring to bear. And so um, so she's like, we interviewed, she interviewed me and she, me and she said, I, this would be great. I'd love to bring you on. So I had this one-on-one relationship with a psychologist at the counseling center for two years. And I remember um, doing this work early on. And I, one day I went to her and I said, I, we have to talk because I don't know if I'm cut out for this. And she said, what do you mean? I said, well, when we're doing our work with a couple, like I have this thing that happens to me. And it's just, it's unprofessional and I don't know what to do with it. And well, what happens? Well, my eyes will start to mist, kind of tear, if you will. And sure enough, 10 or 15 or 20 minutes down the road, the clients will be crying because of the things they're talking about. Mm -hmm. And I can't, I don't know what's happening to me. So this is how kind of uninformed Mm -hmm. I was. And she looked at me in this really kind way and she said, oh my gosh, Brad, that's called empathy. Yeah, yeah. And that's a gift. <laughs> and that really was the first time that, like, I had a high-level professional, other than the run the psych lab stuff, mm-hmm. but then this was the next high-level professional that kind of, like, helped me tune into my aptitude, yeah. the gift that I had, which is really the ability to tune into other people and what's happening, um, and that that was a skill that I had. Yeah. So that was profound. That's wonderful. And it sounds like this this person was in just in tune with you in general and trying to help you be the best professional that absolutely you could be. and it was set up to be a mentor model right. right so so she was kind of working with me and teaching me over the years did she end up playing a role in getting work after you graduated no, as well no, no i um gosh what did i do right away oh that's a huge story but i want to give you another so profound experience yeah, in grad school so again i i um I kind of sat back. I, I was this kind of imposter, right? I didn't know anything about this. And, it, and, and within the first semester, I kind of looked at everyone and I thought, holy man, I belong here. Like, mm-hmm. I can do this. And that was a really powerful feeling. And then my um, advisor, uh, we write a master's level thesis. Um, he and I had a really good relationship right away. And he picked up on a paper I wrote right away um, about school counseling. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote this paper that proposed that school counselors should operate as consultants within the school systems so that instead of just kind of spending their time, A, either doing at the high school level, like college preparatory, right, right. And, and or at the other level working one-on-one with clients, the clients or patients or, or the students, that the school counselor should actually take the skill sets that they have and work system-wide, network-wide um, to help change the entire system. Yes. 
So I wrote this paper, <laughs> and he looked at it, and he said, this is pretty cool. And so his is really pretty cool because he said, hey, I think we can publish this. Yeah. And so he took it on. Um, he was my advisor. Um, and for those of you that don't, don't know, professors at that level, they need to publish. That's how right. they maintain their job. Right. So part of what he was doing was he was – trying to create something that he could publish but another thing he was like this is really good and i will support it and what he did that was absolutely critical jenna i'm curious to see how you respond i was first author on the article not him really because it was mine i actually really like that philosophy i think that's really rare though i have not seen a lot of that because nine times out of ten professors at this level are going to have their name on it first Because they need to publish a right. certain number of things to, to maintain their, their positions. And so he was like, this is yours. He said, like, I'm just going to be a supporting author on this. And he did the editing and everything like that. And um, so I think that I was the only student in my cohort that was published. I, yeah, that's, that's actually rare at the master's level to have something yeah. actually published in a, a so, review journal. <laughs> so funny story, those of those students that might know me, um, I love the wilderness and being outdoors. And so when I graduated um, uh, grad school, um, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Again, I was at this choice point. And somebody along the way that I regarded positively had said, you know, Brad, you should do this thing called Colorado Outward Bound. And I was like, yeah, I'd love to be outside, whatever. And so like about January of that year of graduating, I didn't know what was going to happen next. I applied to, to Colorado Outward Bound for a scholarship to just go on a trip. And I, and I wrote how I was a therapist. I was a therapist in training, and I loved their model, and I didn't see myself working in an office, but I see myself sure. working in lots of different ways. And I got a full scholarship as like this 25-year-old guy to go on this Colorado Outward Bound trip. And so as soon as I graduated, boom, I was off. I was in the mountains for a month um, backpacking. And I came back to Madison after a month of backpacking. Um, in, and with this, this, I had a ponytail and long hair. <laughs> I can and I, and I looked like this, like this, this wildebeest that came out of the mountains. And my professor said to me, he found me, like somehow found me. He's like, where have you been? He said, I need a picture of you. Because our article is going to be published and the deadline is this. And so I went to like some like one minute passport photo place, <laughs> took this picture of me and it's, it's published in this journal, you know, where I look like this wild mountain man. <laughs> that was great timing, right? When you get Because I just didn't understand any of the professionalism of right. it all, right? I wasn't in the academic professional mindset. I was just this applied practitioner um, who just kind of liked working with people. Can I um, dig into that just a little bit with the the, the Colorado? Because I'm I, was it wasn't meant to be therapy. It was just leading. No, I wasn't or... leading. I was just a participant. Oh, I was oh, just a okay. group member on a team Got in the it. mountains for a month. Okay, so it had nothing to do with actually no. being like adventure therapy t- or whatever they well, call that. Well, so or... when I made the application, I said I really see myself with my master's degree working in some way, shape, or form in this way. Yeah, and I've never done anything like this, and I'm wondering. I'm a I'm a poor graduate student who has no money and no job and I'd love to have the opportunity just to go on a trip and so they wrote back and gave me a full scholarship you know it's like ten thousand dollars to go on that trip like some benefactor the way they do it is they have benefactors that kind of pick up letters and then they pay for your trip and then I wrote them a thank you letter when I got done but that put me on the path of adventure-based therapy that's yeah I was just going to ask so did it lead directly into that or that just was something in the back of your mind after you were so that was just a personal growth experience 
but then it was also with an eye towards I don't think I'm a I don't think I'm an office psychology kind of sure. counselor. And then when I got back, I started working in ropes courses here in Madison. And so I started doing ropes coursework, um, and that started me down this path of doing adventure therapy work. So how did that all materialize? Oh, the... so <laughs> so um, I worked in the fall when I got back. Then it got winter, and then I, I worked just bartending jobs to get through the winter so that I could set myself up for a spring ropes course work um, in a local facility that specialized in this outdoor education kind of stuff. And um, then I started that job week one. Um, and I was going to be kind of like the group leader or facilitator, mm -hmm. you know, with a master's degree therapy. So here I am again. Ready? Um, I've got a master's degree. I'm 26 years old and I'm going to make $12,000 a year <laughs> doing adventure-based therapy. And when I started that week, um, I just randomly noticed an advertisement somewhere as I was scouring boards and diff different places to try to mm -hmm. find different kinds of jobs. What can I do in this field? Right. Um, there was this job that popped up, adventure-based therapist, master's degree required, literally doing the outdoor industry work in a therapeutic setting, right. paying $35,000 a year. Um, it was in Valparaiso, Indiana, and it was really this, this kind of very visionary female who was running this program, who had this ropes course, and who was transitioning all of this outdoor adventure kind of just group stuff towards actual treatment. Right. So I, 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 got, I start my new job, and I asked my new boss. I said, hey, how, <coughs> how significant, like how many jobs look like this? This is a pretty interesting job. Right. And when I asked her that, she looked me in the eye and she said, are you telling me you're going to leave and take that job? <laughs> and I said, I said, no, 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 no. I said, I'm just learning about the field. Um, you're in the field. I just have a question. It's, it's, they're interviewing right now. She said, if you're telling me that you're going to take that job, I need you to make a decision right now. Are you going to stay with me for the summer or not? And I had no clue about what I was going to do next, right. but I'm very, um, I'm very much an authentic kind of mm -hmm. live in my gut kind of person. And I just remember sitting there going, holy man, well, if you're going to react this aggressively to my simple question and you're going to make me make a decision, that other thing sounds pretty cool. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I'm pretty skilled for that. But if you're going to make me make this decision, I guess I'm going to leave. So after two days on the job of this new position, I walked out the door, packed <laughs> up my car, and I had no job. Oh, my goodness. And I drove down the interstate. I had everything in the back of my little hatchback car, <laughs> my futon, everything I owned. And about 10 miles down the interstate, I got a flat tire. Oh, <laughs> on the side of the road at 10 o'clock at night. <laughs> like, here it goes. Everything I own on the side of the road, fixing a flat tire. And all I knew how to do was I just got to go back to uh, my mom's place because I, I, I need a place to live Figure for right now. Right. So I went back home and I had no job. And in the interim, um, I reached out to that place. I interviewed. Um, my very best friend in grad school and I did the same kind of work. And she agreed to hire both of us. So my very best friend and I, the following fall, started a job at Valparaiso, Indiana as adventure-based therapists. Wow. And we did adventure-based therapy for inpatient units. We did adventure-based therapy for outpatient. We would bring individual um, groups out and people would learn to meet each other and kind of learn to kind of work with each other. I did uh, alcohol and other drug clientele in that situation. So across the whole mental health facility, we were the people that did this active-based form of therapy with all of our clients. And what did that... What did that look like? 
It looked like so it could be in a it could be in a room like a room like this where we're doing kind of gamified activities with balls and you know funny picture games where we you know have to act things out and it it also primarily looked like working on a ropes course and so like using the ropes course where you do adventure based activities that seem risky um but that really aren't and getting people to get out of their comfort zone sure. and use each other for support to have success on this task and so then transmitting all of that back to like now where's the application to this within your kind of therapy realm within your within your life you know, so just getting up every day and doing this kind of active-based stuff with people in groups. And was that was that satisfying to you? Was that job super fun? It's very engaging. It's like like you know, a camp counselor with a graduate degree. You know, <laughs> going deeper. And after a year, um, it got boring. Interesting. Repetitively doing the same kind of thing over and over and over and over. And at that time, the director of our mental health center came to me and said, "Hey." Um, I'm opening up a residential treatment facility. And really what was happening is we were, it was a time when we were closing down the inpatient, unit, inpatient units. And so this has been decades where we've been systematically shutting down these inpatient mm-hmm. units that existed. And so he was going to transition his inpatient unit to a residential treatment facility. And he was going to take some of the kids that fit there, transition them out. But he saw this as a money-making opportunity for the mental health center. And he said, hey, you're the only person in the whole institution who's worked in residential treatment facilities <laughs> and with youth in these ways. Ways, would you be willing to be the director of my facility? And so at the age of like 27, um, I became the director of this residential wow. treatment facility where, you know, we housed 15 kids for a year at a time. I had 20 people working for me. Um, these are the most significantly mentally ill kids that exist in society. And we were trying our very best to have a more open living model as opposed to an inpatient model. So the challenges that existed just were enormous. Um, I think I worked uh, 70 to 80 hours a week for wow. two years yeah. to establish first to establish his facility and then to keep it running. Um, you know, and I was just, it was just another experience in my life where instead of trying to preordain the dots and follow it and get to a place, um, being open to the, the serendipity of mm-hmm. things as they come. Um, so it's like, like my meditation, my mindfulness stuff teaches me this. I'm a rock climber, you know, instead of over gripping on life, um, I'm not, I'm not a religious person. I was raised with religion, but I'm Mm -hmm. not that way anymore. But there has to be some sense of trust in yourself that what's coming your way, you will be able to handle, Mm -hmm. you'll be able to figure it out. And so that's what my life lesson has always been. Just don't really over grip to try to figure things out. Don't overstress to f- feel like you have to know exactly what's coming next. Ironically, that's my kryptonite as well because like that's what I do like in small ways in my life, but in, in this larger way, just being open to everything that came next. So when you were the, the director of this, this program, um, did, that, did that pull on, obviously, your psychological training? Were you doing any of the, the business side of any of that? Two or did was that not something you had to, to handle? So as the director and because it was in its infancy, the like VP or whoever had tapped me for this job was was doing the kind of finances and the budgets okay. and stuff like that. And so I was really charged with just the site management. Okay. Um, but he and I met on sure. all the level of everything that was happening. But my job really was the hiring and the firing and the supervising of my staff. Um, you know, directing the programming that we offered. Um, we moved into a, a opportunity to run on-site 
um, teaching. So we had a, in our basement, we kids had a classroom. So they would get up. It was a Victorian era style home. <laughs> and so remember when I said earlier about how sometimes these facilities aren't that great for kids? Right. Sometimes kids are re-traumatized and re-abused in these facilities. And sometimes adults um, are using their power in inappropriate ways in these facilities. And so I really saw this as an opportunity to like do it right. And it was really actually very motivating. All right, I get this opportunity to run this facility in this home. Um, the kids shared bedrooms in the third floor and the school was in the basement and I had a cook and I, I kind of charged her to make cookies every day. So, <laughs> so you felt like you're at grandma's house. You, right. weren't, you weren't in this concrete facility, but you were living in this home. Mm -hmm. um, so my job was just to manage that environment, schedules, the licensing of it, the, the paperwork, all that kind of stuff. That was a question I know students have asked me to ask in, in this of, of people with clinical work, but um, insurance and dealing with insurance, was that something you had to Ooh, do there? No, so super interesting. This was back in the 90s, and in Indiana, um, at the time, school districts were so flummoxed by these very significantly problematic kids in their districts that a school district was willing to sign a contract for that child to come and live in my facility. Oh, okay. And that, that, that contract was $100,000 for a year. Oh, we wow. had 15 kids. So the facility brought in $1.5 million a year. And that was literally money that came directly from the school district. the school district. Interesting. Is that something that continues no, to happen? No, okay. not at all. Not at all. Yeah, so that, that trans transformed over the years school districts were not willing to spend that money or see themselves as the the source that should be right. funding that kind of intervention for the kids and so then it got systematically more and more problematic i know after i left but i was still in this window where we had this pretty beautiful funding stream that was concrete um, just another question on licensure in this case. So you were a licensed professional counselor? So no, actually. So I just had a master's degree. And I so these positions that I was in, so I was working towards it um, as a therapist. So when I got hired in the treatment center, I just had a master's degree and I was working towards my, my licensing that I would have needed to work in the state of Indiana mm -hmm. um, as an adventure-based therapist. So all these were kind of different, right? Like I wasn't doing the typical therapy I was always working in this kind of side aspect of it so like as a master's degree counselor I was capable of doing that adventure-based therapy work within this facility as, and I was making that progress and then I became uh, the director of this facility and then I wasn't doing clinical work so I was just the director I had a psychiatrist and nurse and social worker and therapist and line staff people overnight people teacher I just directed that so I no longer needed to be licensed so it's an interesting part of my career that then I didn't wasn't licensed. Well, I did that job for three years, basically until I was burnt out and I couldn't do it anymore. Mm -hmm. And because I had um, kids from school districts, I had developed these relationships with these special ed directors who were having their kids come to my facility. And I, I started to sell them on my master's level thesis idea. You know, we really should be doing all we can to have the kids not get to this place. Right. How can we support kids in your, in your districts, in your buildings? How can we change the culture of working with these hard kids? And I really, um, I talked myself into a job in a co-op in Indiana. There was a 10 school district co-op and I was hired in 1996 or 97, 97 by then probably, um, as the single behavior consultant in a co-op of 10 school 10 districts. 10 schools? 10 school districts. 
So if you think of the Madison area, <laughs> oh my gosh! If you think of the Madison area, <laughs> Metropolitan, like Madison, Wanakee, right. Monona, um, you know, like ten oh school districts. Gosh. I was the single behavioral consultant for ten school districts. Did they have people working under you at least? So this, or- they had their typical system. And then, you know, I was just this new, like, we're going to do this new thing. Like, here's this guy who's really good at working with kids, who's really good at creating systems. And I had this boss. She was the transformative leader. Like, like um, you and I have talked about how just we always expect people to be better than I think they can be. And I don't mean that in a negative way. What I mean is that real transformative leaders are few and far between. Mm-hmm. I've only had two in my life. And so she hired me with this vision of, wow. I think by having you in our system, you will start to change our system. Mm-hmm. And so um, when they hired me, her idea was I'm going to assign you a caseload of kids and you're going to work in that situation like with the kids. And I was like, no, 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 Let's, you got to think about this differently. Right. The way we're going to think about this is I'm going to move as quickly and as fastly as I can, as quickly as I can, excuse me, across these 10 school districts and affect change in the most significant ways based on the needs of each and every situation. So she was like, okay, like, I don't know how this is going to look. And I said, well, let's just work on it together. And basically when a teacher would have a problematic situation, um, I would be assigned to that situation. There'd be a school psych and, you know, all the local kind of people. And I would just be this extra set of eyes that would come in. And I would just start to think differently about how to support that child in that building. And my goal was never, no children knew that I was there to work with them. Right. Because I was only working with the system. So I was just creating this thing. Like I was just creatively creating this consultative model that ironically I had written about. Not ironically, right? It's the right, serendipity yep. of tuning into Following who we are. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't really know who I was, but as I kind of tuned into my gut through my career, it just kind of kept opening up. So eventually, basically, I um, I would sit in classrooms. I would track behavior. I would track adult interactions. I would meet with the um, six, eight, ten adults that had the most significant role with this child in the building. And then I would be a resource to all those people to how to nail down interacting with this child so that we could create success. That's, that's just excellent. It's, it's so cool to see it blossom. Was, was there pushback to that from any of the, so, the teachers or the school? Uh, definitely, definitely. Um, the, so I was hired by the assistant director and the director of the, of the whole co-op was really skeptical <laughs> of bringing in this affable, nice guy who, you know, <laughs> what's he going to do anyway? But my, the assistant director, Joan, she was the one who just gave me free reign. Um, absolutely. There were teachers who we, we would talk about this. We would strategize. Like, where is going to be the place where my skills can come to bear? Mm-hmm. If there's a teacher or a principal or a building that are just, they're not on board with behavioral change in these ways. We're not going to waste time trying to kind of knock doors down mm-hmm. as much as we're just going to go to where it works. Yeah. And so the whole idea was for the first year, just let's just go to where it works. Don't send me to the most challenging adult don't send me to the most challenging teacher that's just going to cross their arms and say i don't want to do this have me work with the people that are open Mm -hmm. and that are desiring this and what we're going to do is we're just going to create growth and where 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 success happens then we'll create more success it'll build and then my reputation will build and as my reputation builds then more people will be open absolutely it was really cool that's such a cool experience were you approaching it with any, um, and maybe this is a personal philosophy kind of thing, but did you approach it with any particular, 
phrase it, school of thought, yeah, maybe in yeah, mind. Yeah. And was that related to your training or, or just things you picked up along the way or your personal philosophy of life? No, I think, I think that um, it's, it's natural inclinations that I have and then the training that like evolved over time and then mm-hmm. what I learned worked. <laughs> so, so I would very much consider myself, uh, I lead with a humanist approach. Mm-hmm. Um, I lead with this kind of sense of... Um, acceptance and Mm -hmm. genuineness and authenticity and you know since I was trained in meditation um, I often talk about how um, I believe in the space between you and I that's that's where that's where the magic is Mm -hmm. so that's kind of how how I've I've always operated Mm -hmm. the relationship Uh, just the relationship so I lead with this very humanistic perspective Uh, but then I have uh, I I don't I wasn't really trained and I didn't go through ABA programming but applied behavioral analysis and mm-hmm. kind of cognitive approaches are really important. But but mostly because it's younger kids that I started working more right. and more on. Um, it's really pretty strictly applied behavioral analysis right. and stuff. It's it's understanding um, uh, the 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 math equation mm-hmm. that is antecedents, mm-hmm. triggers, behaviors, reinforcements, and how to how to use that sequence to change behavioral patterns. Yeah. Were you were you collecting data at the same time and doing any research um, along with this that you were or you or someone was tracking or publishing or? No, not at all. Um, I was just man. I was just working as a consultant going out. Um, I would I would take kind of copious notes about everything that I did. Mm-hmm. I remember one time my boss said, hey, what can I do to make your job easier? <laughs> and I said, because she wanted to get me as, to him as many places right, as I yeah. could go. Um, I said, you know what? If you could allow me to dictate the work that I'm doing and have a secretary um, tran- uh, transcribe this, that would help me so much. <laughs> so at the end of the year, we, I'd have several three-ring notebooks you know, of everything that I did all year, every person that I touched, every intervention that we engaged in. Um, and I would, I would summarize that at the end of the weeks to look at stuff, but I didn't publish it. I didn't do anything with it beyond just kind of working really hard to be a consultant that helped people feel supported when they were working with hard kids. Yeah. Did, did anyone else take, or, or, or I guess how to ask this, I know we were talking about this um, before, before the podcast, but um, so how does that idea spread? How do you see that idea of the consultant within the system? Is it something that is adopted widely in the United States now, or is that still something pretty bespoke for you? Well, you know, I've been out of it for 20 years. So interestingly, let's go back to the credentialing, because mm-hmm. as I took this job on, um, then I got licensed as a school counselor. Okay. So like I actually, because the job was unique, there really wasn't a mechanism for anyone right. saying this is what I needed, but I felt that I needed that credential. So then now that I was working within the school districts, I was able to then work towards that school licensure within the state of Indiana as a school counselor. And that's that's a like a, a guidance counselor licensing or a school psych type license? No, guidance okay. counselor Counsel- type. Okay. Not, not not like PhD school site, not doing testing, not, okay. not, not that level. Okay. Just like the typical, yeah, guidance, guidance counselor, counselor, I guess, is what you would call it. And that's what my I whole... I don't mean to be pejorative about no, that. No, but I that's what my whole mission was, right. guidance, right? right? That was my idea from the beginning, was that 
what, why, what is a guidance counselor? If, if, I, if I leave this master's program with the skill set and this knowledge, I should be able to disseminate this and change right. the system. Right. right? So I, I had a beef with that word guidance right. you know, back in the day. So, so I got that license. Um, you and I talked earlier. There were some things that emerged through this, um, doing early autism work. Um, within the school districts at that time, that autism work that I was doing, we developed an on-site, um, in, uh, in, uh, on-site school-based one-on-one behavioral program for kids with autism. Um, when I did that, I was working with the University of Indiana. Mm-hmm. There was a researcher at the University of Indiana who was, you know, kind of the publishing person and was doing this kind of stuff. So um, I wasn't doing the data for that person at that time. Um, I was working kind of just as a an extension of the work that they were doing in Bloomington, Indiana. The autism program adopted a, um, uh, we were a replication site for data. So I wasn't in charge of that data as well. We had a, um, I was kind of like the clinical director, if you will. So we had our teachers that were doing that stuff and who were responsible for the reporting of that data back to this replication site so that they could use our our work as a broader extension of the work that they were doing. So as a member of a team, you didn't have to do all the research yourself, but it was being looked at in coordination with, with the I just ended work. up in all of these roles being this this consultant, being mm-hmm. this kind of high-level consultant who's challenging people to think in different ways and supporting the work that was happening you know, at, at the front line. That's excellent. And, and how long did you stay with that position? Did it evolve to something else or did you end up so leaving? I did that job probably for about three years, I'm going to think, 97 to 2000, something like that. And then um, my wife and I were married and our honeymoon was traveling the world for a year. <laughs> so that's the point in our life where we, I, I was a rock climber. I was a mountain climber. I, uh, I had friends who were professional climbers and I'd watched them do this pretty cool thing where they would work six months and then they would travel six months and they would write articles. And one of my best friends was in, in National Geographic on the cover of National oh Geographic. Um, he's actually dead now. He died in Yosemite. Be a rock climber long enough and you know, oh lot, you, know yeah. lot, you know lots of people that die. But anyway, so that was like, I, I'd worked that for three years and just like, hey, my wife and I got married and I, I, I pitched this to her. I said, wouldn't it be cool? Like thinking I was really <laughs> awesome, like this really cool date. Like if, if you get married and then you travel for, for your honeymoon for a year. And she grew up in a, 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 so she was first generation as well, a college student, grew up in a steel mill family who worked in the steel mill south side of Chicago. And she recalls looking at me going like, what the heck? Do you, who does that? Like, you got to get up and work. And turns out we got married and we traveled for a year living out of our backpacks in Thailand, Cambodia, Vietnam, spent three months in Nepal. You know, this is why I never like to go after you in faculty meetings when we talk about what we did over the summer or (laughs) (laughs) yours are always amazing adventures. And yes, Um, that that's just incredible. So then when you got back from that, what was your so here's where are we going? Let's tie this back around (laughs) then to the credentials, to the what's college about. I know a lot of our students in today's world are sitting in their desks wondering, what am I going to do? Is this even worth it? I know that our political discourse is, <laughs> is talking down about yes. college education and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, and there are many pathways to success in life. And so there's, there's no real sense that you have to do one thing. And there's no real sense that any one thing is going to guarantee anything. Right. Right. So in my mind, it's a probability game. And um, in our world today, you don't know what you want to do 20 years from now. And so getting a college education is not about 
uh, a job at the end of the line. Getting a college education is about building your brain. It's about building a knowledge about history and having to give speeches and having to write papers because all those skills you're going to bring to bear later in life. That's what college is about. So in my intro psych class or wherever we are, we do this conversation the first week of class. Like, hey, this is what this is about. You're sampling in your first couple of years. It feels random. It feels uncertain. Even my son had a difficult time and didn't really understand what his first year was about. Mm -hmm. And now he's rethinking and he's got some new goals. Um, But those first years are kind of sampling. The second years get so much more fun when you drill down into Mm -hmm. kind of what you really want to do. It seems more meaningful. Mm -hmm. Um, So I remember the day. Um, I've done a lot of traveling, as you said, every (laughs) meeting. I have this thing that happens to me whenever I travel. And we've traveled for a year at a time. I've traveled for three months at a time. Um, in lots of different countries and about the halfway point it takes me about the halfway point no how no matter if i'm traveling a week or six months um all of a sudden at the halfway point i have ideas about what i'm going to do when we come out it's like my brain just kind of does this thing is that loosening up to we're at the halfway point now i'm starting to think a little bit about coming out of this trip i can remember the exact day that my wife and i were at a coffee shop in vietnam some small town sipping coffee and i said to her you know I'm trying to start to think about what I'm going to do when we go back. She says, well, I'm going to be a teacher. I said, well, I know. We can go wherever you get a job. That's really cool. And um, I said, I think I want to teach at the college level. I think that I never was a one-on-one clinician. In fact, I remember doing kind of some partial one-on-one work in the resident in the in the uh, mental health center in Valpo and we would do peer counseling set peer uh, consultation sessions with the therapists mm-hmm. and i remember looking at the room at all the therapists who were 20 and 30 years down the road looking completely devoid of emotion dejected and i mm-hmm. thought i do not want to become that mm-hmm. they looked like they were ground down they looked like they're just kind of it's hard. This yeah, job has taken its it toll. And I don't want to become that. So I, I realized really early on that I was never going to just sit in a room and do therapy, that I was always going to do it in a different way. And then everything that I had done in a different way has led up to this point of me being this, this kind of big thinker um, who enjoys transmitting information to other people. And I'm really tired of the clinical work. It's mm-hmm. exhausting, even though I did it as a consultant and I wasn't doing the clinical work, mm-hmm. just being in the clinical setting is mm-hmm. hard. And so it's like, I think I want to be a teacher. And I, I knew nothing about college teaching. I knew nothing. I, if, if, if you would have told my family when I was 18, I'm going to be a college <laughs> instructor, you know, and I use the word instructor, um, Ah, imposter. I don't feel like I'm an imposter at all. I think I'm perfectly placed for this job. Yeah. But I think professor to me means researching and publishing and kind of doing that aspect Mm -hmm. of the field, pushing our field in that direction. And I call myself an instructor just because I'm a disseminator of information. And I'm also a bridge builder to to your next life, your next careers. So so I didn't know anything about any of this. I came back... um, we were supposed to move to Wyoming. My wife said, you know, I can't move to Wyoming because we're going to have kids. And if we have kids, i got to be close to family. Ah, yes, and yes. Um, <laughs> I said, yes, you're exactly right. <laughs> yes, yes. And so um, my family's from Minnesota. Her family's from Indiana. I said, if we're going to be close to your family, I cannot live in Indiana because I am an outdoor guy and there is nothing going on. <laughs> so if we're going to live somewhere close to your family, we got to live in the Midwest. We're going to go back to Madison. So my wife and I literally plopped down in Madison, sublet a summer place after we got done traveling. My wife picked up a autism job that summer working one-on-one in home with kids. 
through one of the early pro- WEEP, maybe mm-hmm. the programs in the area. Um, I went to the same ropes course that I'd worked in when I finished grad school and said, hey, um, I'm interested in work. And I started working at that ropes course. And then somebody in that facility noticed my resume and they had a day treatment program for kids that were kicked out of school. And they said, what the heck? Look at all the stuff you've done. Would you be willing to run our day treatment program? So I got hired at Family Services, Inc. to run their day treatment program. And um, my, my plan was to start becoming a part-time teacher, to, to investigate that. So in that year that I worked in that director of that day treatment program, which was like, it was, it was easy for me. I didn't enjoy it because I didn't want to be in that clinical right, setting right, anymore. Right. Um, I started teaching part-time. Well, the story goes like this. Um, I contacted Upper Iowa University, and uh, on the phone I said, hey, I'm calling. I see that you have a position. The director of my, my, my business teaches for you. And you know, I said I should reach out to you, and she, you're hiring people to teach psych classes. Okay, yeah, so tell me about your experience. Well, I've done this, I've done this. And she says, you know, um, we're looking for people who have teaching experience. Mm. And I said, you know, actually, really quick, and I paused it. Um, because I knew where that conversation was right. going and I was not going to let it happen. And I said, so, hey, actually, I have a meeting next week on that side of the town. If I come over next week, would you have time to give me 30 minutes just to show your facility? And I actually didn't have a meeting. But all I wanted to do, <laughs> all I wanted to do was get in front of her. Of right. her. Right. And um, imagine me back in the day with a ponytail and John Lennon <laughs> glasses. And uh, so the week later, I go in and I say, hey, I'm Brad. And I'd really love just to see what's going on here. Can you just teach me? about Upper Iowa. And so one of the things that I've tried to teach my kids is it's way better to be interested in other people than to try to have other people be interested in you. Mm-hmm. So just always be affable and interested in people and doors will open and open to serendipity. Um, so we met for 30 minutes and we sat back down in her office and she looked across the desk and she said, yeah, I can see you're a professor. <laughs> and so she hired me that day to start teaching. And so I started teaching some part-time classes at Upper Iowa. And she came back to me at one point and she said, so you know, um, I don't want to lose you because I think you're more like a Madison College professor. And I'm just letting you know that I'll give you any class that you want. And sure enough, a position opened up here. Um, uh, the, uh, the person that was doing the hiring here um, I talked to him on the phone. I used the same line. Hey, I'm going to be. Can I come and meet you? Can I see you? <laughs> so this is advice for getting jobs, right? Yeah. Uh, can I come and see you? And as we sat down and we met and he said, hey, I really, I do think you can teach this class. And so then I got a, I got a class here. And in that same frame, when I got a class here and I was teaching a few classes there, there was an interim position, a, a limited term one-year position. So I interviewed for that job and I got hired for a one-year job here. here. Yep on just an interim one-year basis. It was like a one-year walking interview. Everybody right. you run into, it's like you want to give a good impression to. And then the next year I got hired full-time here. And so the point of the story is credentials, degrees, you don't know what you want to do 20 years from now. When I had that aha that I thought that this would really be a good place for me to apply my skills, my life experience, because I had the credentials and the degrees to do it. So I don't have the credentials to teach at the UW in a, in a tenured professor position, though I would be hired for lecturer positions mm-hmm. or things like that possibly. But, but this environment, the community college environment, master's degree is all that's required. I have a master's degree. Um, so I was hired and it's just a perfect environment for the amalgamation of everything I've done. Yeah. And, and without the credentials, 
20 years down the road, when I had this aha of what I wanted to be, I would not have been able to do this. Or I would have been pressed to, you know, go back to school and get stuff done. Mm -hmm. So it's like you you don't feel like what you're doing right now is going to add up to something when you're in college and you're you're sitting in a class and it doesn't seem to make sense. But you just have to understand that that if you have a college degree, and I'm starting to feel like in our world today it's even more than a college degree Mm -hmm. to secure stuff. So it's two, it's two ways. It's a college degree and a technical trade skill. Mm -hmm. So like it's both. It's like the guys that I teach here that are in auto body repair who then come back two years later and say they want to get a, an associate's degree in business mm-hmm. because they want to run their own thing. Right, it's right. both, right? And if you enter the field of psychology, there has to be an awareness that you've got to get a graduate degree. Mm-hmm. And you asked me about the pressures of payment and credentials, and it feels like in today's world, unfortunately, many mental health centers are going to, are, are, have been moving away from PhD-level people right. to push work down to master's-level right. people with licensing, you know, state licensing. So for good or for bad, a master's degree in counseling psych is very employable. Yeah, definitely. Especially with the kids area if you're working yeah. with children. And yeah. you really want to do something in the field. It's not really psychiatry, but if you really want to make a lot of money and do a lot of work, become a child psychiatrist. Yes. Because there are nowhere near enough child psychiatrists. That's exactly what Chris said too, and I've been telling my classes. <laughs> like write your own ticket if you're a child psychiatrist. You write your own ticket if you oh become a gosh. child psychiatrist. Yes. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yes. Well, we are, uh, this is just Obviously, I'm newer here than, than, than you, and you helped bring me on board because you gave me my tour around here, and I was, I was, that was wonderful. That was a wonderful experience, just seeing how much you light up actually being here. Um, but is there anything else that you just want to, to share or anything else that you think would be beneficial for students to know? Um, I think you've given a lot of really great advice on why this is important and why it'll be in the field, and even experiences that don't necessarily automatically you don't see it in your path it comes back later to be important um but any just anything else you'd like to add i don't i don't think so i think we've hit on a lot of the most important things i mean just as a piece of advice i would move down the path now in our distractible world and our stressed world more and more towards kind of meditation and mindfulness i just brought to my class um, just this week, an article that was written, you know, they're trying to quantify, does it work? It's really hard to measure. But, you know, one guy's writing about 12 minutes a day. If you grab an app, a breathing app, sync breathing app, Headspace, as students here at Madison College, you get access to Headspace. I don't know if, if people know that or not, free access to Headspace. <laughs> I didn't so know you that. can sign up for that. But, but I think for our own mental health and for your own ability to move forward in life, we've got to calm our brain. We've got to become in control of our brain. And that can be done. You can make very, very positive strides mm-hmm. just by sitting down for 12 minutes a day using a breathing app, resetting your central nervous system. Everybody that I work with for lots of years talks about how when they do that in the morning, before they get started, they feel like they're, I, I use a Kobe Bryant quote, quote in my sports psych class. He just says basically, once I do this every day, it's, it feels like I'm in control of my day versus chasing my day. Mm-hmm. And just like the piece of advice, I, I get in my car before I leave my driveway, just kind of recycle those breaths so that I can leave my home thing there and so that I'm ready to be here. When I get to the parking lot, I recycle the breaths again just so that I can anchor myself in the place that I'm here so I'm ready to do what I have to do now. Mm -hmm. And if you just do that a couple of times a day, you'll reset your central nervous system, you'll calm your brain. That's the advice I'm kind of giving right now in life. Excellent. 
Thank you so, so very much for joining us. Thank you for doing this. It's wonderful. <laughs> it's been very fun talking with you. Um, I know students will get a lot out of it. And to the listeners, um, whoever you may be, uh, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. And uh, we will see you next time.